Chapter Five of Dwellers in the Hills by Melville Davis and Post. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter Five: The Wagon Maker. A spring of eternal youthfulness gushing somewhere under the bed of the mountains was a dream of the Spanish Main, sought long and found not, as the legends run. But it is no dream that some of us carry our inheritance of youthfulness, shoulder to shoulder, with Eld, into no man's country. Such a one was Simon Betts, the wagon-maker. I sat by his smouldering fire of shavings and hickory splinters, and wondered at the old man in the chimney-corner. He was eighty, and yet his back was straight, his hair was scarcely grey, and his hands— resting on the arms of his huge wooden chair, were as unshrunken and powerful, it seemed to me, as the hands of any man of middle life. Eighty. It was a tremendous hark back to that summer, long and long ago, when Simon came through the gap of the mountains into the hills. The land was full of wonders then. The people of the copper faces prowled with the wolf and whooped along the gully, the dwarfs lurked in the out-of-the-way corners of the mountains, trooping down in crooked droves to burn and kill for the very joy of doing evil. And who could say what unearthly thing went by when the wind shouted along the ridges? The folk then were but few in the hills, and each busy with keeping the life in him. The land was good, broad waters and rich hilltops, where the blue grass grew, though no man sowed it a land made ready for a great people when it should come. With Simon came others from the south country, who felled the forest and let in the sunlight, and made wide pastures for the bullock, and so elbowed out the wandering and the evil. High against the chimney, on two dogwood forks, rested the long rifle with its fishtail sight and the brass plate on the stock for the bullets and the patching. Below it hung the old powder-horn, its wooden plug dangling from a string, tools of the long ago. Closing one's eyes, one could see the tall grandsires fighting in the beech forest, a brown patch of hide sighted over the brass knife-blade bead, and death, and to load again with the flat neck of the bullet set on the palm of the hand and covered with powder. That yesterday was gone but old Simon was doing with to-day. On two benches was a cartwheel, with its hickory spokes radiating like fingers from the locust hub, and on the floor were the mallet and the steel chisel with its tough oak handle. Stacked up in the corner were bundles of straight hickory, split from the butt of the great shell-bark log, round cuts of dry locust, and long timbers of white and red oak, and quarters of the tough sugars, seasoning, hard as iron. With these were the axe, the wedge, the dogwood gluts, and the mauls made with no little labor from the curled knots of the chestnut oak, and hooped with an iron tire-piece. It was said on the countryside that old Simon knew lost secrets of woodcraft taught by the early man, in what moon to fell the shingle timber that it might not curl on the roof, on what face of the hill the sassafras root was red, how to know the toughest hickory by hammering on its trunk. 
when twigs cut from the forest would grow, if thrust in the earth, and that secret day of all the year, when an axe, stuck into the bark of a tree, would deaden it to the root. Simon Batts was not a man of many words. He smoked in the corner, stopping now and then to knock the ashes from his pipe, or to put up some brief query. Jed and Ump had come in from the old man's log stable, throwing their saddles down by the door, and spreading the bridles out on the hearth, so that the iron bits would be warm in the morning. "'How will the day be tomorrow? I asked of the wagon-maker. "'Dry,' he responded. "'Great rains in the mountains, but none here for a week. Then storms.' "'Isn't it early for the storms?' "'Yes,' he answered. "'But the wild geese have gone over, and the storms follow.' Then he asked me where we were riding, and I explained that we were going to bring up Ward's cattle from beyond the Valley River. He said that we would find dry roads, but high rivers. The gates of the mountains would be gushing with rains. The old man studied the fire. Presently he said, Mr. Ward is a good man. I have seen him buy a poor scoundrel's heifers and wink his eye when the scoundrel salted them the night before they were weighed, and then drove them to the scales in the morning around by the water trough. I laughed. This was a trick originated long ago by one Columbus, an old grazing thief of the Rockford country, who went ever afterwards by the name of Waterlum. It was a terrible breach of the cattle code. Again the old man relapsed into silence. His eyes ran over the shoulders of the big Judd who squatted by the fire, sewing his broken bridle reins with a shoemaker's wax end. "'Are you the strong man?' he said. The giant chuckled, and grinned, and drew out the end of his thread. "'Well,' continued the wagon-maker, "'Mr. Ward spoiled a mighty good blacksmith when he put you on a horse.' Then he turned to me. "'Is he the one that throwed Woodford's club-footed nigger in the rassle at Roy's tavern?' "'Yes,' I said. "'But one time it was a dog-fall.' and Lem Mark says that Malin slipped the other time. "'But he didn't slip,' put in Judd. "'He tried to lift me, and I knee-locked him. "'Then I could have throwed him if he'd been as big as a polled Angus heifer.' "'Was you wrestling back-holts, or breeches-holts?' asked old Simon, getting up from his chair. "'Back-holts,' replied Judd. The wagon-maker nodded his head. Doubtless in the early time he had occasion to learn the respective virtues of these two celebrated methods. "'That's best if your back's best,' he said. "'But I reckon you ain't willing to let it go with a dog-fall. You might get another chance at him to-morrow. I saw him go up the road about noon.' Behind the old man Ump held up two fingers and made a sweeping gesture. The wagon-maker went back to the corner of his house for some bedding. Ump leaned over. Two flyin', he said. One went east, and one went west, and one went over the cuckoo's nest. If I knowed where that cuckoo's nest was, we'd have the last one spotted. What do you think they're up to? said I. Ump laughed. Oh, ho! I think they're out lookin' for babes in the woods. And the fancy pleased him so well that he rubbed his hands, 
and chuckled in his crooked throat until old Simon returned. It was late, and the wagon-maker began his preparations for the night. He gave me a home-made mattress of corn-husks and a hand-made quilt, heavy and warm as a fur robe. From a high swinging shelf he got two heifer-hides, tanned with the hair on them, soft as cloth. In these Judd and Ump rolled themselves, and, putting their saddles under their heads, were presently sleeping like the illustrious seven. The old man fastened his door with a wooden bar, took off his shoes, and sat down by the fire. I went to sleep with the picture fading into my dream, the smoked rafters, the red wampus of the old wagon-maker, and the burning splinters crumbling into a heap of rosy ash. A moment later, as things come and go in the land of Nod, Cynthia and Hawk Roof were also sitting by this fire. Cynthia held the old picture with the funny curls, the one that stands on the mantel-shelf at home, and she was trying to rub out the curls with her thumb, moistening it in her red mouth. But somehow they would not rub out, and she showed the picture to Woodford, who began to count on his outspread fingers, Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Only the words were names somehow, although they sounded like these words. Then the dream changed, and I was on El Mahdi in a press of fighting cattle, driven round and round by black malin and parson peppers, bellowing like the very devil. When I awoke the fire was blazing, and the grey light of the earliest dawn was creeping in through the chinks of the log wall. Ump and Judd had gone to the stable, and the old wagon-maker was busy with the breakfast. On the hearth a mighty cake of cornmeal was baking itself brown. Potatoes roasted in the ashes, and on the little griddle, about as big as a man's hat, a great cut of half-dried beef was broiling. Famous chefs have spent a lifetime fitting beef for the royal table, and a king of France slighted the business of an empire for the acquirement of this art, and a king of England knighted a roast, but they all died and were buried without tasting beef as it ought to go into a man's mouth. I write it first. A polled Angus heifer, fed and watered and cared for like a child, should be killed suddenly without fright, and butchered properly. Let the choice pieces hang from a rafter by green withes, and be smoked with hickory logs until the fibres begin to dry in them, then cut down and broil. I arose and went out of doors to wash the night off. Between the house and the log stable, under a giant sugar-tree, a spring of water bubbled out through the limestone stratum, ran laughing down a long sapling spout, and splashed into a huge old moss-covered trough. With such food and such water, and the air of the hills, is it any wonders that Simon Betts was a man at eighty? Hark ye, my masters of the great bergs, drinking poison in your smoky holes. I plunged my head into the water, and my arms up to the elbow, then came out dripping and wiped it off on a homespun linen towel which the old man had given me when I left the house. As I stood rubbing my arms on the good linen, Ump and Judd came down from the stable and stopped to dip a drink in the long gourd that hung by the spring. They were about to pass on, when Ump suddenly stopped and pointed out a man's footprint leading from the stable path over the wet sod to the road. There were only one or two of these prints in the damp places below the spring, but they were fresh and made by a foot smaller far than the wide one of old Simon Betts. 
we followed Ump to the road. A horse had been hitched to the rider of the rail fence, and there were his tracks stamped in the hard clay. There was not light enough to see very clearly, so we struck matches and got down on the bank to study the details of the tracks. I saw that the horse had been one of medium size, a saddle horse, shod with a store shoe, remodeled by some smith, but this knowledge gave no especial light. Ump and Judd lay on their bellies with their noses to the earth, searching the shoe marks. "'It's no use,' I said. "'We can't tell,' and I sat up. The two neither answered nor paid the slightest attention. No bacteriologist plodding in his eccentric orbit ever studied the outlines of a new-found germ with deeper or more painstaking care. Presently they began to compare their discoveries. "'He was a Hambletonian,' began Judd. "'Don't you see how long the shoe is from the toe to the cork?' Ump nodded. "'Annie was curbed,' Judd went on. "'His feet set too close under him for a straight-legged horse. "'Still, that ain't enough.' "'Put this to it,' said the hunchback. "'And you got your hand on him. "'Them's store nails hammered into a store shoe, "'and the corks are beat squat. "'That's stone shoein'. "'Now you know him.' Then I knew him, too. Lem Marks rode a curbed Hambletonian, and Stone was Woodford's blacksmith. Judd got up and waved his great hand towards the South Country. "'They're all riding,' he said. "'Every mother's son of the gang, and they know where we are.' "'With rings on their fingers and bells on their toes,' gambled Ump. "'And we know where they are.' Then I heard the voice of the old wagon-maker calling us to breakfast." End of chapter 5